Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where fine podcast products are found. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. This week, we have a slightly different kind of show for you. Uh, our regular colleague, Dan Huger, was uh, a year ago at the second National Conservative Convention, uh, wrote a cover piece for an issue of religion and liberty about it. In about two weeks, we briefly discussed it at the end of an episode, but I really wanted to dive into it more. And since Dan was not at NatCon 3, I wanted to bring on two people who were there to see what was to be seen and to hear what was to be heard. So to that end, we're joined today by Stephanie Slade, senior editor at Reason Magazine and a fellow in liberal studies here at the Acton Institute, and Jack Butler, submissions editor at National Review Online, a media fellow for the Institute for Human Ecology, and a 2022-2023 Robert Novak Journalism Fellow at the Fund for American Studies. And we're also joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate. So today we'll be discussing all things related to the third National Conservative Conference. So, Stephanie, I'm just going to start with you and ask you, what did you see at NatCon 3? Well, you know, I've been following the the NatCon movement, this new conservative nationalist movement, for years now. And all along, my question has been, like, what do they mean by nationalist? What does this word national? What is this word nationalist doing here? Because I think there are plenty of things that you can imagine nationalism meaning that are not so scary. Like, if it's just being used as a synonym for patriotism, love of country and pride of country, okay, great. Um, and if it's mostly talking about how we need to remember the importance of the nation state. Um, and keeping power at the level of the nation state, as opposed to sort of supra-governmental institutions, international governing institutions, trans-governmental institutions like the UN or something, then I think probably a lot of conservatives were already there, you know, before the nationalist conservative movement came along. Um, but so, so I've been trying to figure out what does nationalism mean? And I think at this conference, um, it really revealed itself as essentially, uh, it's, it's, it's a will to power is how I f- phrase it. It's what is nationalist conservatism? It's conservatives who want to seize power of the federal government and use it to destroy their enemies, their ideological opponents, the woke left, and if need be, I think probably libertarians as well. Um, so that is what it means to be a nationalist based on what I, what I heard uh, at this conference. Jack, you were also there at NatCon 3. What did you see? So the main thing I was looking for is as Stephanie was, is the distinguishing factor. Like, what is what is the difference between the the people who are at speaking at this conference and the people on the right that they disdain or think, if not disdain, sort of think inadequate to the present moment? And I think Stephanie's right that probably one of the main distinguishing factors is a greater willingness to use. Uh, government power toward aggressive ends and a kind of deprecation of especially the the free market. So I, there's this piece that David Brog, the president of the Edinburgh Foundation, which is the primary sort of sponsoring institution for the conference, wrote before it happened uh, four myths that you should stop believing about national conservatism. 
And one of the four myths was that uh, national conservatives are all against the free market. And Bragg says in this piece something like, um, "All I've yet to meet a NatCon who doesn't revere the free market as the engine of our prosperity. Well, I don't know. I mean, you should probably have talked to some of the people at the conference because uh, there were some, there was at least a couple of speakers. And I should say I was not at every panel, uh, but in some of the panels that I did attend, th- there was at best a kind of secondary appreciation for what markets are capable of. And even among those who sort of gave them uh, rhetorical credit, there was a lot of what I'll call big butts, one T, uh, <laughs> of, I'm a, I like free markets, but, or something to that effect. And so this is sort of what uh, Governor Ron DeSantis was about in his speech, what Rachel Bovard went on about in her remarks. There's just a, a sense that uh, the, the conservative appreciation for free markets has in part led conservatives to the, the inopportune situation in which they find themselves now. Yeah, the the buts about all of it is always interesting, right? Because that it kind of negates what came before it and leaves only what comes after it as you know, the standing opinion. The I, you know I wonder how much of the you know I I believe in or am fond of free markets part is just affectation at this point, kind of a thing that they need to say to think to transition to it. But the part of it that I, I always find interesting is the not as much the shredding of that kind of doctrine, but moving on from a general understanding that I think the right had of Hayek, the, of the unintended consequences of central planning, that Hayek didn't mean that it just applied to when the left does it. It would mean that it applies to when the right does it as well. And there just seems to be a, you know... It, very quickly dismissing of the idea that there could be any unintended consequences, but, you know, well, we'll get the major thing that we're looking for and everything will be fine. There's a really strange, and I, I you know, when Jack points out that piece, I'm struck by, you know, uh, at NACON 2 last year, Chris DeMuth, who also has an affiliation with uh, the Edmund Burke Foundation, gave a speech that was essentially like you would hear anywhere else in the conservative movement where Adam, the virtues of Adam Smith are extolled, where if, you know, the, the rec, you know, he recommended Michael Novak as a guy, as a model to think through the relation of markets and morality, and also went on to list the sort of accomplishments of fusionism. You then had on the other extreme, Josh Hammer, who has an affiliation with the National Conservative or with the uh, Edmund Burke Foundation, um, talking about, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, analysis of power that Stephanie points to about using politics as a way to reward friends and punish enemies and a sort of hostility towards the liberal tradition in general. Um, then you had Yoram Hazoni make the sort of central pitch that what he wanted was a new fusionism between what he saw as national conservatives and what he called uh, anti-Marxist liberals. Um, so like this, this is a tension that I think is real within the movement. And I'm wondering... You know, because the first National Conservative Convention was sort of a declaration of independence and break from past conservative movements. The second, especially, you know, Yoram Hazoni's talk was about 
broadening that tent and explicitly including some folks who would style themselves liberals. Um, is there what's the trajectory here at this latest one that you observed? Um, is this a new declaration of independence, a, a declaration that that failed sort of, you know, new fusionism under new uh, terms and conditions? Has that track been abandoned? Well, you're absolutely right that, you know, it depends who you ask, right? And these people are not necessarily all marching in lockstep on everything that they want and how they approach the idea of classical liberalism, for example. But I think maybe it's helpful to get more concrete. So in my uh, my piece that I wrote up about the conference at, at Reason.com, um, I, I tried to enumerate some of the main policies that they that I heard being articulated, you know, being called for from the main stage, for example, um, and from the people who are associated with this organization. And it's things like they want to stop. They don't just want to crack down on illegal immigration. They want to stop legal immigration, right? They think immigration is a problem and it should be stopped at least for a while. Um, they want to implement a national industrial policy. So this is the federal government, you know, tariffs, subsidies, regulations to try to dictate how businesses are run and who who wins and who loses in the marketplace. They want to uh, go after the endowments of left-wing universities using their pa- the taxation power of the federal government. They want to use antitrust and, if necessary, common carrier regulation to go up against big corporations that um, they see as treating conservatives unfairly in some way. Um, and if you listen to Hazoni, they also want to get prayer in the Bible back in our public schools. Um, and I think that these were the kinds of things, these are the kinds of concrete policies you hear them calling for at this conference. And I didn't hear much, if any, dissent against any of them. So although there are different you know, perspectives among the people attending, the, among the people speaking, there was a pretty, I think, high degree of consensus around an agenda like this that involves, again, aggressive use of government power, uh, especially at the federal level. Yeah, yeah I agree with that uh, at the sort of, granular level at the at the sort of in terms of your trajectory question i think a trajectory now is sort of these are two sort of related things now now the the natcons are attempting to descend into the back into the raw uh grubby political sphere but to do so requires boundary setting and this is something that no one likes to uh, of this school likes to admit uh, they they hate gatekeepers and all of that but they're everyone gatekeeps this is just a ridiculous notion that everyone has that that gatekeeping is bad but one of the gatekeeping acts that was done and that differentiates natcon 2 from natcon 3 uh, the integralists no more integralists. They're gone. They're banished from from the, the spears of NACON. They have their own conference uh, coming up later this or in early next month, and that that they they had a real presence at NACON two, not here at NACON three. In fact, were denounced from the stage by at least one prominent speaker, and then on several panels, uh, Kevin Roberts of the Heritage Foundation said, "Integralists, heal thyselves." Uh, sort of going on at length about how they're not. Um, they're not; they just aren't a good fit for the political coalition that is forming. So I found that interesting. But at the same time, even though I think Stephanie's right that that a consensus is forming on a, on a kind of political agenda, there are some there are some tensions that have not been wholly smoothed over, and instead are kind of being ignored. So here here are two examples I can think of. I'm referring again to the Brog piece, which I find is a useful sort of benchmark for these things. One is uh, one of these other myths that Brog says that people should stop believing about NatCons is that NatCons are all isolationists. And he says that 
NADCONs want to sort of strengthen international alliances, and that's the way that we can escape from the morass of our our Middle East failures and follies. Fine, I, I I'm not I'm not sort of wedded to those failures and follies in any serious way. I don't I don't really care much about them. But uh, the way that so in this piece, Brog says uh, identifies Ukraine and strengthening Ukraine as one of the examples of a NATCON foreign policy. Well, I, I'm not so sure all of NatCon, all NatCons are really united about that. And in fact, I, I think that there's been, to, since I mentioned Kevin Roberts and Heritage, that's been a concerted change in Heritage lately. This uh, this idea that the money being sent to Ukraine is kind of a waste of U.S. taxpayer dollars. And then the other tension is over the, here to refer again to one of Brog's other myths uh, that it's a Trumpist organization. Yeah, there were other. Trump was not there. Uh, several other politicians were there, but I mean, my my sense of many of the panels where Trump was mentioned, uh, especially in the context of like the, of the, uh, the the FBI search executed on his Mar-a-Lago residence, is that he is the biggest threat to the regime. Everyone loves talking about the regime now. Um, that so that that's interesting. But that it's it seems that. So there's that on on one hand, and then meanwhile, on the other hand, in DeSantis's speech, you had very subtle hints that uh, maybe Trump didn't handle COVID as well as he could have. So there there are tensions there, but I think that the, this sort of political coalition, the interest of actually becoming a governing uh, faction or perhaps majority, wants to sort of paper those over. Foreign policy is a, a a real tough one for them. I mean, Jack's absolutely right about this because um, I, I always point back to the first NatCon convention, which was here in D.C. where I live, and so I was there for that one as well. And um, how they they were simultaneously trying to to say we are we are sort of anti-interventionist. At least there were some people uh, associated with the movement. Uh, Dan McCarthy comes to mind, who were saying, you know, to be an, a, a nationalist is to be uh, sort of anti-interventionist. We are we are sort of a America first, bring the troops home kind of thing. Um, and then they had John Bolton up there giving a keynote address. And so there, there's really a lot of tension in what does it mean to be a nationalist on foreign policy? I mean, you could be an America first person and say, bring the troops home. We should be spending our money at home, you know, on domestic priorities, let the rest of the world fend for themselves. Or you could be an America first person and you could say to, to, to make sure that, you know, to keep America as safe and strong as possible, we want to have a global presence abroad. We want to be out there, you know, maintaining our position as the global hegemon. So it really could go either way. The latter being basically Chris Demuth's view, and he especially sort of emphasizes how it's a nationalist view to defend the national sovereignty of Ukraine and Taiwan. He wrote this view in a Wall Street Journal article earlier this year. And for people like the the integralists, when you have Demuth saying things like that, that for them is proof of their critique of NatCons, that they're just kind of what they would call right liberals and nationalism is just this guild that they're applying to the same, so this sort of 2003 era conservative policy to make it uh, respectable again. What's interesting to me there is some of these terms that get used or these slogans that get used function almost like Rorschach tests, that they're, they're said and people are, are allowed to pour into them whatever they want to project into them. By example, I was at another conference earlier this year and we had a private dinner with about 12 people and uh, with the, the film that Acton's produced, The Hong Konger, the, uh, I was invited because the topic was China. And uh, one of the young people who is often associated with this SnatCon movie 
movement was there and gave this whole soliloquy about you know his view on foreign policy and and you know, how we should deal with China and just very curtly said that you know it should be aligned with America's interests as if saying that is really saying anything meaningful whatsoever i mean there's there are multiple different ways one could interpret what is in America's interest. There are legitimate disagreements you people could have over what is in America's interest. But it is just declared as like like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy, that if it's it's said, <laughs> then it's like just recognized by everybody to be true. And there's no further real explanation of, you know, well, is it in America's interest to completely withdraw from the world? Is it in America's interest to continue to try to assert itself as, you know, the, the what was the unipolar power and is becoming a bipolar power now with China? What, there's just no real definition offered. And I, I hear both Stephanie and Jack's descriptions of a lot of these conversations. And it, it I obviously I wasn't there and I didn't hear it, but it strikes me as sounding a lot the same, that there's these kind of general bromides that are being offered that aren't really being filled in. They're filled in by some individual people, but there's no, you know, from afar, I can't see the consensus here on anything. To tie the two threads that Jack raised together, the integralism in this question of foreign policy, if you look at most of the folks involved, heavily involved in the national conservative movement, are to their credit against Russian and Chinese imperialism and aggression. And you see this in the NatCon statement of principles that came out in between NatCon 2 and NatCon 3. You also see this as a real source of division between the national conservatives and the integralists. Uh, Soreb Amari, who spoke multiple times from the main stage at NatCon 2, is one of these integralists who has criticized this sort of now established, you know, at least, you know, quasi official national conservative position as being an example of uh, of how this is really a liberal nationalism. Um, And when you look at some of these folks, Adrian Vermeule, Soreb Amari among them, have been um, less than critical, often complementary of sort of Chinese power in the world. I think that's a real fissure here. There was also a little bit of a a Twitter kerfuffle um, about this in which Yoram Hazoni came out and said that basically invitations to these people were, ex- or at least some of these folks, were extended to be speakers at NatCon 3 and that that was declined, that that was a choice that they made rather than a sort of gatekeeping that, you know, the folks who organized the conference were exercised in. Uh, I think it, you know it's it's fair to note that the NatCon half of the schism um, is more uh, favorable toward a sort of uh, I don't know American involvement abroad uh, maybe on average but I think that that there are some wrinkles in that and I, I mentioned Dan McCarthy earlier who definitely hails from the sort of paleo conservative tradition the Pat Buchananite um, skepticism of of foreign intervention um, and that is represented in this movement and also Josh Hammer who is a prominent nationalist national conservative who um he put out a what he called a a, a primer 
um, a primer for the uninitiated on what NatCons are all about um, right around the time of the conference. And he said explicitly in that, on foreign affairs, the United States should severely curtail its involvement with or outright exit from the sprawling edifice of post-war liberal transnational institutions and went on to do, uh, talk about a foreign policy approach that um, is far from the neoconservative creed. Um, so, uh, so there really is that there is real tension within the NatCon movement on that on that one. Real wordsmith, uh, Josh Hammer. Um, yes, Stephanie's right about that. And I've actually so interestingly, given the, what this schism that has emerged, I, I just will say as an aside, having read Matt Cottonetti's excellent uh, The Right earlier this year, I find it amusing to think about like some future edition of this book that has to sort of go into Twitter threads and be like, so this didn't, this sort of, this fissure opened up over Twitter <laughs> citation here. But um, yes, the tension is real. And I, but I guess given that this fissure has now opened up, I sort of think about this article I wrote last year in the aftermath of the Afghanistan, U S withdrawal from Afghanistan. When I, I lumped Hammer and Sorabamari together as because in the in the immediate aftermath of this, they were basically, in my view, sounding like George McGovern types. They were basically saying, "Come home, America." They were talking about how terrible America's domestic situation was, and that was the reason why we needed to do sort of nation building at home. I, I think I, I can't remember if Hammer used that exact phrase or not. But that was certainly the gist of both of what they were saying. Uh, but now they kind of have different views on various things. So I don't know if they... And, and, and when prompted, uh, Hammer sort of outlined a foreign policy vision that was not neoconservative, but that justified American uh, intervention and action in some inst instances, such as the killing of Soleimani, the Iranian uh, dictator, or Iranian uh, general terrorist type dude yeah he's not the he's the subordinate he's not the, the ruler uh but but in, in the in the subsequent period i would say that uh Saramari has gone more toward them like mcgovernite school i mean just recently he was say, saying things about uh fearing nuclear war and that being a reason for the west not to act in certain ways that were basically, if you look back in the sort of conservative histories, these were things that were explicitly disavowed by like 50s, 60s conservatives. And as this is like the sort of the Russia is taking advantage of the West's fears here to constrain our actions. But now they've been revived by whatever it is that uh, Amari is trying to form. So I find that interesting. But that's not really, it's sort of a field from what NatCon 3 was about. So I will stop digressing now. Well, Jack, since you brought up Matt Continetti's book, uh, which I also had the pleasure of reading earlier this year and interviewed him for Acton Line. We'll put that interview in the show notes. One of the things that amuses me about uh, Stephanie went through some of the policy platform stuff that was listed earlier, and even just the nature of some of these uh, internecine arguments that are going on is it always seems to be presented from these people as if it is something novel. Like this has never been, these arguments have never been made before. These debates have never been had before. And, you know, there is, I don't think we're predestined for anything here. I don't think that they have to turn out the way that they went before, but even just to ping off of the integralist thing, right? You know, it's, 
is it's it's treated as if this is some like just brand new discovery and departure from what had always been as if Triumph magazine never existed in the 1970s if Brent Bozell never broke off from Bill Buckley and tried that whole project yeah it was you know more based around Franco at the time and I'm not quite sure what you know compact magazine is based around uh, but it is it is not as if these arguments for even we mentioned Pat Buchanan earlier, right? We can go back to the 90s for the culture war stuff. We can go back to the arguments Pat Buchanan's been making for a long time. Like this stuff has has been there. Uh, it is just offered now as if nobody had thought of this before. And I just I personally find that kind of amusing. There's an interesting thread with this is is these debates repeat in the movement and these sort of movements wax and wane. And when you start looking through these individual agenda items, I think, I think the degree to which there's anything new, it's, it's what the mix is. Is this a fresh mix? Is this something that is, let's say distinct from the Buchanan brigades of the early nineties. And I think one of the ways that it's different is the way that the Bible is foregrounded. Um, this isn't to say that, um, you know, Pat Buchanan was, of course, you know, is himself a Catholic, uh, does believe religion should inform public policy, but there's no sort of sophisticated political theology behind that. And what you see with the integralists is an attempt to do that. And what you see with – and one of the strikingly sort of new things at national at – the, at the most recent conference that I wanted to ask Stephanie and Jack about was there were a number of panels on Protestant social thought at this latest uh, national conservatism conference. And there was also um, – I believe the concluding speech was from Al Mohler of the Southern Baptist Convention – um, do you see and did, what were your impressions of that, of the sort of, uh, you know, if, if a sort of form of, of radical, uh, Catholicism is waning, is Protestantism coming to the fore of this movement? I think it's right that, um, there is a sort of conscious attempt to build up a Protestant counterpart to the Catholic integralists happening right now. So, and, and that there was a presence among the folks doing that at this NatCon convention. So there was a, a basically, essentially a panel on Protestant integralism. Um, uh, I didn't make it to that one. Uh, so I, I don't want to, you know, I, I read about it after the fact, um, but I don't want to say too much uh, about it since I wasn't there. But I know that there is, there have been, you know, sort of the hallmark of this moment is there's constantly new organizations and new publications being stood up to represent each of these individual individual factions. Um, and so there is a new um, organization publication uh, on the sort of Protestant uh, integralist right um, advocating for just a, a post-liberal Protestantism. Um, and they were there and they were talking about that. And yes, there was, uh, you know, the final closing keynote speech was um, it was somebody talking about, I, I thought his speech was actually quite interesting. It, it was, um, making the argument that the idea of a, a, a truly neutral, um, secularism isn't really a thing. 
uh, or, or common square, or a, a public square that is truly neutral, neutral um, that liberalism isn't really neutral, right? This is a, this is a reasonable point to, to, to dissect. And I think that I've heard people at Acton, including Michael Matheson Miller, make, make this argument. So um, this is not like a completely crazy thing to say, um, but there was, there is certainly a, again, a conscious, um, there is, there is, there is energy afoot trying to build out a sort of counterpart to Catholic integralism on the Protestant side that is post post liberal. Yeah. Beyond that, there is also, I, I, th- I think such efforts would be, if at least consistent with the uh, stipulation of the the National Conservative Statement of Principles, which was this idea of uh, Christian majorities enshrining basically Christianity into into law where they're able. And this is something that Yoram Hazoni, in in his keynote at at NatCon three, emphasized pretty strongly. He believes that they're basically that liberalism as we enjoyed it from, you know, post-war America until 2020 is now dead. It died in 2020. It is now, it has been defeated by uh, woke communism or woke Marxism. I can't remember which particular thing he calls it, but basically it's over. And the only thing that can stand up against it is a, is a sort of revived Christianity in the public square. And I have some natural sympathy for such a sentiment. I just, I have many questions about what he means by that. Uh, particularly, and, and when you talk about uh, Christian majorities in a lot of places, probably most places, that's going to be some kind of Protestant majority. And I, I don't know how I feel about that as, as a Catholic myself. I'm, and with the specter of a kind of uh, long simmering um, uh, Protestant, uh, how, how shall I say, skepticism of Catholicism in public life. I mean, that there's a considerable extent to which uh, Catholics in this country have relied on and prospered as a result of uh, more than the sufferance of the Protestant majority, but the sort of institutions that in American public life that have not f- forced this, this Protestantism uh, in as a sort of a matter of policy. So I don't know. I and it, and you can also sort of wonder how Yoram Zoni, who is Jewish. Uh, feels about this. I mean, I, I just, I still haven't quite reconciled that. I mean, if there's a, for example, if one of the, one of these policies that you hear bandied about, although not much at this conference, as far as I could tell, uh, was uh, about you bring back blue laws. So that this idea that we should close businesses on Sunday, uh, Sunday is not the Jewish Sabbath. So, I mean, what does that mean? Is that something that if there's, you know, if there's some, some Jews in a place where a Protestant majority is able to enshrine Christianity and public law, they just have to sort of figure things out. I, I mean, I, I just don't know. And I don't know if this has been fully thought out by, by people who, who talk about this kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's an interesting point. It's also what kind of draws me back to the point about these slogans in which people can project whatever they want to see. Because you know, we, we've talked about the uh, the Catholic integralist part of it. We've talked about this uh, aspirational Protestant integralist part of it. And then I think you can zoom out to maybe like an ecumenical integralist part of it because you have the speech from – uh, Michael Knowles, who included in the line, the traditional definition of the United States, uh, he says, is inarguably Christian nationalism, which, I mean, again, 
what do we mean by this, right? If it is some of the more, uh, like, the go back to the problem with a lot of the discussion about nationalism. I remember um, from I think, Rich Lowry and Ramesh Manuru's piece where they use the term of benign nationalism, right? With, you know, benign is doing a whole lot of work in that two-word phrase there. The Christian nationalism part of it, it could be some of the more benign things that we've been talking about, like returning the role of religion more to the public square and having that be more of an element of the conversations that we're having. Okay, I could I could be on board with that. And then can read the uh, stuff that David French has covered about certain elements of Christian nationalism. And when you go up there on stage like Knowles does and you just throw this term out there, I don't. You know, people are kind of left to their own devices to determine whether it's the mod or the Bailey part of the Christian nationalism argument that we're supposed to seriously engage with. Yeah, I think he was trolling us a little bit with that one, to be honest. Michael I mean, Knowles trolling. Well, yeah, I mean, him. that's actually a good point, too, which is the how much of who are the people who are up there really seriously offering what their perspective is and who are the people who are up there doing performative stuff like this? And when you have a conference curated that combines those people, and I, I, get, I get the argument that you have some people who are entertainers and some people who are intellectuals and all of that, but it muddies all of this to a great extent where it's like, you know, yeah, Michael Knowles is probably trolling, but who are we supposed to take seriously and who are we not supposed to take seriously? So there are more in... More sophisticated and less sophisticated versions of this argument. Um, there's a long history of sophisticated versions of this argument in American history. I would put this down to things that many of the founding fathers said about the role of religion in public life and its necessity for a free people and self-governance. I would put, uh, you know, you have figures such as Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln making arguments about national covenants in favor of abolition. You have um, a history of a sort of uh, religious understanding of the struggle for democracy in the First World War. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was Presbyterian, came out of Princeton University. Um, you have figures like Billy Sunday, a more proto, you know, a fundamentalist figure, arguing that, you know, if you turn Germany upside down, you find made on hell as the label. Um, you have versions of this throughout American history, some more salutary, some less salutary. And you have a sort of cottage industry among evangelicals right now of those either, you know, uh, ginning up fears of a Christian nationalism or hopes of a Christian nationalism. And I don't think uh, that debate is helpful. But what you do have at the National Conservatives Cong Conference is some people interested in more sophisticated arguments. So Brad Littlejohn of the Davenant Institute is one of this, one of these people who has done some work into Protestant resourcement. You have Yoram Hazoni in his book, The Virtues of Nationalism, talking about his idea of nationalism as something that there is a Protestant contribution to. And he thinks that Protestant contribution comes from the reformers doing a sort of resourcement work in the Hebrew Bible and the centrality of the nation there. Um, so you have it's it's everywhere and it's nowhere all at the same time. And none of these there is not a consonant 
single position that's embraced by all, but they seem to be dedicated to the language equally. And one of the ways that they're dedicated to the language seems to be as rhetorical, not so much as advancing a position as raising the hackles of the right sort of people. I want to address two more parts of this uh, conference before we end in Dan's piece about NatCon 2 that we published in Religion and Liberty. Uh, your observation was that the best received speech that you saw was from Chris Rufo. Uh, Stephanie or Jack, whoever wants to go first on this, I'm curious, was the best received speech that you saw this year the one from Ron DeSantis? I, I think so. Uh, I would say that he was the he was the main like the first note keynote speaker. The crowd adored him. Um, he was. Th- it's interesting because I was at CPAC in February, which was also in the state of Florida, um, and and this NatCon three was in the state of Florida. And I was curious to see because there because there were several speakers that were that overlapped at both whether they would give different speeches. And the truth is, what I found with Ron DeSantis is that his red meat speech. Uh, they ate it up at CPAC and they ate it up at NatCon. And NatCon is a is a different beast than CPAC. CPAC is um, you know much larger. It's a lot more regular, you know, run of the mill, work a day Republican voter types. There, it's very Trumpy. Um, NatCon is a more highbrow version. It's a lot more academics and and sort of public intellectuals. They're trying to build out, uh, the, clearly trying to build out the intellectual scaffolding around this new movement. Um, but the the types of um, things that Ron DeSantis was saying um, about you know bragging about his record as governor of Florida, um, it played in both places, and they were all about it. This idea of breaking up big tech, this idea of going after Disney because Disney speaks out against a, a law that Republicans support. Um, this idea of mandating, so essentially uh, preempting or forbidding private companies from uh, from implementing their own vaccine requirements for their workers or for their customers. Um, so essentially using the power at the state level to preempt private businesses running their businesses the way they want to run them. Um, this stuff played in both places. The NatCon crowd loved it. They, they had no objections um, to it. Um, whereas I, uh, as a sort of coming at it as a, a, a truly free market, you know, small L libertarian have many objections to the types of things I was hearing from him. Do you think that the difference there primarily with these two groups is just basically then, uh, you know, obviously not basically, because there are plenty of other disagreements between the CPAC crowd and the NatCon crowd, but the, the tribunes that they're offering that if they could make their choice, like CPAC would go with Donald Trump and NatCon, which is, as you said, trying to build this intellectual scaffold is, you know, I, I hosted a radio program last night where one of my guests observed that Ron DeSantis is just, you know, shrewd, a shrewder and more sophisticated version of the same kind of uh, what, what Stephanie kind of uh, laid out there, that a lot of this is informed by grievance. That, you know, these uh, some of the policies are derived from I'm really, really mad at Disney. I'm going to work backwards now to find a way to punish Disney. I'm really, really mad at big tech and I'm going to work backwards now to find a rationale to punish big tech. It is a shrewder and more sophisticated version of what Donald Trump had on offer for the last number of years. Yeah, I think that's right. And at CPAC, they, they do a straw poll, you know, famously every year at CPAC. Donald Trump got like 60 percent of the vote. Um, they, that was still a Donald Trump crowd. Although I went around and I interviewed as many regular attendees as I could, just regular people who were there as attendees, not there as part of the media or as a speaker or, or as a you know representative from a group, a group that had a, a 
booth um, at the ex- exhibition hall, but just regular people who had come to CPAC. And I asked them who they were most excited to hear speak. And their answers were almost universally Donald Trump and then Ron DeSantis. So he was sort of their number two. Um, and but But he was the only other person that basically very many people at all named. You know, they were excited about him. They were there in part to see him. They, that was the speech they were excited for. Besides Trump himself, it was DeSantis. Yeah, I would agree with uh, thing Stephanie said about DeSantis's popularity at NatCon three. I would add that he was introduced as a future president, so that was interesting, and the crowd really was into that. And that I think, even though the DeSantis speech was similar over NatCon 3 and CPAC. I think DeSantis seemed to have a sense of the crowd he was in at NatCon. And, for example, his fellow Floridian, Rick Scott, senator, spoke uh, also at NatCon 3, and I don't think he really understood where he was to whom he was speaking. I mean, he still got applause lines and all of that, but his speech was less tailored to the kind of crowd that was at NatCon 3 than DeSantis's was. So I, I don't, whether DeSantis is actually one of, like is himself a NatCon or thinks that he needs to appeal to them, I, I am not sure. But he seems to certainly be thinking about NatCons as a constituency, if at the very least at an intellectual level, if not at an actual political or coalitional level. One of the questions, I mean, when you have someone like Ron DeSantis, who's very popular on the right, sort of embracing national conservatism, tailor, you know, to the point at least where he's where he's tailoring the speech, finessing it to that audience. When you have, you know, the president of Heritage Foundation coming out and saying, you know, heritage is with you on these things. This is a very short time from the first National Conservative Conference, which I believe was in 2019, um, you know, where they styled themselves as insurgents, that there is part of what this is, is an indictment of what's often referred to as conservatism, Inc. Heritage has to be like just the, the paradigmatic example of conservative, Inc. in that indictment. Yeah. And if the most popular politician outside of maybe President Trump on the American right and in which one of its largest and most influential and and longest sort of presiding think tanks are 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 hitching their wagons to this. Is this an insurgent movement anymore? Is national conservatism now representative of conservatism? Yeah, I mean, I think from the very beginning, though, what the national conservatism movement was trying to do was to hitch its wagon to an existing wave of of enthusiasm for Trump. So they looked out there and they said, wow, we did not see 2016 coming. Like, what, what has changed? What are these people so excited about? And how can we take advantage of this? And how can, again, we build something around it that that that's fueled by that enthusiasm? And so that was the attempt to do it. And I don't think they got it right for, for many of the reasons that we've been discussing um, the, the ways in which the NatCon movement has evolved since 2019 um, reflects, I think, the ways that they didn't necessarily quite accurately diagnose what was going on, or or they overestimated the extent to which they could steer the wave, you know, the, Trump, the sort of Trump phenomenon um, into the p- types of policies that they, the NatCon sort of intellectuals, 
wanted to wanted to see as priorities. And so they had to they've had to sort of do some trial and error to figure out what is their movement going to be. But I think that as of this year, they have um, again they have been co- sort of coalesced around an agenda um, that dovetails pretty nicely. Setting aside the foreign policy stuff. Um, it dovetails pretty nicely with the grievances that regular, many regular Americans and Republican voters do genuinely feel. And so in, in that sense, they, they're able to, you know, who's leading whom is an, is an interesting question, I think. Yes, it is an interesting question. And I think that is the question. I mean, because I think we saw at NatCon 3, essentially, national conservatism attempting to go corporate, uh, to, to be sort of cute about it. But the Thing that I'm wondering is: is national conservatism is this an authentic reflection of sort of American sentiment, like sentiments in the country at large, or is this a kind of attempt by a new conservatism inc. or the same conservatism inc. putting on new clothes to from a sort of DC centric uh, beachhead that's been established to kind of weaponize these grievances that may or may not entirely line up with what they're saying and and use this as a new way to secure uh, a new generation or perhaps some of the same people from p- prior generations into positions of power. I mean, that at my most cynical, at my most uh, uh, James Burnham, perhaps, the that is my the sort of recirculation of elite stuff going on. And I, I will say at my, at my m- most sort of annoyed that i i find people who attempt to kind of take advantage of existing popular sentiments and sort of say so ergo i should be in charge like i let me let me be the new vanguard of this sort of new right-wing proletariat and everything will be hunky-dory i just find that very annoying and if 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 all national conservatism is is an attempt by a faction within conservatism to kind of impose itself from a DC beachhead onto uh, the nation at large, then I think it will fail and it will deserve to fail. The internet and social media really delivered us radical transparency. And I think what's interesting is that we see these people working this stuff out in real time. Where I come back to the Continetti book where, you know, he goes through and documents these different waves throughout this hundred year history of conservatism and the right. That these waves will rise, they will crest, and then they get subsumed back into the ocean. And it's a bit more obscure because you need somebody like Continetti to go back and do the research to find all of this from the correspondence that they had uh, to put it all together. And we get to watch them – if there was a conference held in 1955, right, uh, the likelihood that there are going to be notes from it. Um, you may be able to find the speeches after time if you collected them from the individual people, but that there's no ability to live stream it. There are no people live tweeting it. So we can we consume it in a completely different way that I think gives us this view into people working these things out in real time that we're otherwise uh, in, in history would be unaccustomed to. But this is also one of the reasons why you know I, I, I watch some of this with fascination, again, given the perspective that the Continetti book gave me, because you do see as the these you know, waves of different parts of the conservative movement crest, they do get subsumed back into the Borg, essentially. Um, it kind of becomes a, a slightly different 
differently inflected version of itself. It, it takes on the character of the wave that had just risen, as I'm horribly mixing metaphors here now. Uh, but it, it, it does kind of come back into it, its whole self. So the people who are talking about like this being a huge and permanent breakup between in the conservative movement or in the right in general, I, I, I don't know. Um, I think some of what uh, Stephanie and Jack just said kind of speak to me in that same way that this is uh, we're not entirely sure what this is yet. And it's also just very early on in all of it. I mean, we were talking about this for 2019 is the first conference. So like we're only a few years into what this may eventually evolve into. But I, I think the pattern of history that Continetti lays out is that it does get subsumed somehow. It's also very it was very striking when I went to the second National Conservatives Conference. And I'd, I'd be curious to hear to hear more about this from Stephanie and Jack, too. We've talked about some of the anti-market sentiment, but we've also talked about, you know, a lot of explicitly pro-market statements. And when I got in the plane to go down to Orlando, to NatCon 2, I was circling the panels that were going to be talking about these economic issues. I made a point to go to, you know, the panel organized by Oren Cass um, on sort of trade unionism and worker power. It was a very interesting panel. Um, But no one was talking about that. That wasn't where the energy was. The energy was critical race theory. The energy was gender ideology. Um, The energy was just not in national economic planning or even, you know, things like, you know, uh, trade unionism, civil society initiatives, these sorts of things. Like what I was expecting to find and what I found when I got there were very different just in terms of what engaged the audience, what captured the imaginations of people who were excited about this movement. What did the both of you see in that regard? I think that's so important. That's such a, a, a crucial observation. I mean, Oren Cass, who is this sort of prototypical, I mean, he, he's, a, he's an early champion of essentially nationalist economic policy, and he launched a whole new organization in American Compass to put out white papers and you know proposals about how to actually get there to, to industrial policy, for example. And he was one of the evening, he was part of one of the evening uh, keynote um uh, entertainments in the first NatCon in 2019, a debate between him and Richard Reinch over whether we should uh, have an industrial policy, a national industrial policy. And he was arguing the pro side and the pro side won. Um, but it was very wonky. I mean, the stuff that he does is very, very wonky. It's policy oriented. It's nitty gritty. Um, it's serious. And I don't, and he was just not, that was just not a presence at all at NatCon 3. So it has been overtaken by um, you know, the, people will pay lip service. They'll they'll say we are we favor a national industrial policy, but they spend their time talking about we need to break up big tech because big tech is coming is is discriminating against conservatives, right? That's where the energy the the energy is, and so it still is. I, I would say, for me, from my perspective, I'm categorizing this as economically illiberal, both. You know, uh, national industrial policy where you have top-down central planning uh, done by technocrats and uh, strongman wielding government power to destroy, you know, to attack and destroy his his political enemies. 
um, that that's still economically illiberal. And so they're still rejecting the sort of classical liberal free market economic type stuff. Um, but it's a, a really different vibe at, uh, nowadays than it once was, I think. Yeah, the closest I think that NatCon 3 came to having something like that was a panel that I did not attend on the American system. And basically, this represents uh, so what what Eric was saying about these these things that are constantly being reemphasized and and rising and falling. I think what is happening at uh, in this specific dimension of national conservatism, there's an attempt to resurrect this perceived tradition of the kind of uh, tariff uh, dwelling, uh, infant industry protecting. Uh, economic policy for the the Hamilton Clay Lincoln strain and there's a there's a lot of you can you can go back and sort of cherry pick these things but you can you can also sort of dispute them but I yeah I think that this is this is an attempt to kind of make that seem American whereas the the, per, the perception among national conservatives is that basically the free marketeers won out and made the free market the most American thing I mean that sort of dovetails with this thing I hear all the time about how you know libertarians control DC. St- uh, Stephanie, I don't think you control DC. Uh, last I checked, uh, but I, that'll go to. We keep waiting. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that I'll just go to one more related thing, which is that the the grand sort of shift in emphasis that Hazoni in particular, and I guess Natcons to varying degrees are doing, is. Tor- for conservative conservatism to be shifted away from this kind of explicitly uh, enlightenment-driven Thomas Jefferson Declaration America and toward this Anglo-American uh, constitution-driven tradition. That, that was one of the essences of the national conservatives, uh, conservative statement of principles and that was one of the primary criticisms that, among others, David Tucker of the Ashbrook Center made of the whole proceeding, is that if this is the direction that national conservatism is going in, and this is what Hazoni, at the very least, seems explicit about, that the declaration is kind of this aberration, that Jeffersonianism is this, this errant part of our tradition, then that is a real danger because that is losing something that is essential, an essential part of America. Like I, I don't think you'd find any NatCon who would really disdain uh, the, the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. But if that's true, then Abraham Lincoln, big fan of the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> read his speeches and his writings. So that can be a concern, especially if you get national conservatism to this point where it, it lacks a, ki- a kind of propositionalism. And then again, this is something like a constant tension in uh, American political life, uh, propositional nation or popular nation like which is it but I, I i don't think you can win the argument by just saying like we're not a propositional nation at all so that that's that so but i if that's what the if that's what the game is then i i don't i think that's a dubious one as as david tucker argued quite sadly as we've now also pointed out that dc is still uh, waiting for that libertarian prince who was promised so we'll just have to keep <laughs> have to keep waiting for that I, in the couple minutes we have left i, I want to close it here um it stephanie you had uh, the cover piece in the october 2022 issue of reason magazine that i think kind of I, I see sitting over top of a lot of this conversation um the 
headline and the web version of it, and we'll put in the show notes, is both left and right are converging on authoritarianism. I'm wondering if you could briefly lay out your argument in there. Again, we'll put it in the show notes for everyone to read. Uh, lay it out uh, generally what your argument is and how you think it applies to the conversation we've been having today. Yeah, thank you for the chance. Um, I think everywhere I go when I'm reporting on American politics, I hear from regular people that there's something broken in our politics, right? Something feels wrong in our politics. Something has gone wrong. Um, but when we talk about what it is that has gone wrong, usually we use the word polarization, which implies that the two sides are moving further and further apart from each other. Um, and when I look at, out at our political landscape and I think about what's actually broken there, um, I think it's not that the two sides are moving further apart. I think it's that they're getting closer together in the sense that you have these very powerful voices and, and um, activists and elite movements on the far left and the far right who have rejected classical liberalism. The idea of essentially we need to be able to coexist in one in one country with people who don't share our values without trying to use the coercive power of the state to destroy them or to, to coerce them into living according to our values. That there needs to be a high degree of coexistence of tolerance for people that we don't agree with, um, that these two sides are both rejecting that. And so there is a, a just increasingly and ratcheting up uh, an increasing tendency to reach for the power of the state in order to coerce people who don't agree with us. Um, and this goes across a bunch of domains on economic policy, left and right are starting to sound alike when it comes to commitment to free speech and to religious liberty. Um, we're seeing people on the left and the right sort of rejecting this, this, this you know, long-standing historic American commitment to the idea that we believe that you have the right to speak even if we don't like what you say, and we believe that you have the right to, to live according to your deeply held convictions, especially your religious convictions, even if we don't share them. Um, there, that this is falling out of favor on both the left and the right. Meanwhile, the rhetoric that they're using to talk about the threat posed by the other side is getting amped up and up and up. And so every election has existential stakes. And this is no longer just a matter of who's going to be in the White House for four years, but rather they will destroy us if we don't beat them. And so anything goes to win. Um, so this is a thing I'm seeing happening on both sides. It's not, I mean, and I think there's a story to be told that maybe it started on one side and the other side is now responding. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily arguing that it's exactly um, equivalent on both sides. I, I wouldn't say that, in fact, but I think it is happening on both sides. And that, and that, in that sense, they're starting to, um, to, to resemble each other rather than what, what you might think if you just were to, hearing the word polarization, which is that they're moving. You know, if you hear polarization, you think, okay, the left is turning towards socialism. Um, we, we now have liberal democratic socialists in Congress um, on the Democratic Party. So you would think that the right would move towards free markets. That is the opposite of what we're seeing happen. <laughs> right. The And if there was any sort of, we haven't talked that much about the left on this podcast, understandably, but if there was any kind of motivating sentiment throughout all of NotCon 3, it was basically that the, le the, the reason that we need to step it up basically on the right is that the left is this bad and we need to, it, we need to all figure out, we need to understand what time it is to quote Ward Smith, Josh Hammer again. And I, I think if, if there are sort of NatCon skeptical conservatives out there still, and I think there are, then they, we will need to articulate a persuasive and sufficient response to this idea that, that can manage to, Get us out of this this death spiral of illiberalism that that Stephanie writes about in that piece. 
Thomas Jefferson is open for equal opportunity cancellation these days for both his participation in human bondage and his advocacy for liberty. Amazing. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find our show. Thanks to Stephanie. Thanks to Jack. Thanks to Dan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.